Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. You know, I think you get to this point where you feel like you have something so compelling to say that you can't not say it. I would describe it that way for me, where I felt I have information, some of it sort of hard won through this difficult experience. And we have lots of scientific data to back up what I'm saying. And if I don't say it and I don't put it out there, I'm not being a good human being in a way almost, you know, so I would say I I felt compelled to share that. And, you know, people just weren't practicing that way. So we're in this weird era where like the doctors were like, oh, that stuff doesn't matter what you eat, blah, blah, blah. But the patients were like, I think it matters. I mean, I was hearing from people who had similar stories. I remember this one young woman I saw and she had had a condition called posterior urethral valves where the urethra has some valves that cause the urine to back up. And so she was having urinary tract infections all the time. And she'd been on literally like four years of antibiotics nonstop. And her gut was so messed up. And I remember thinking like, parents need to know, like, this is not okay. There's a minor procedure they could do to correct this problem, but you can't put your kid on antibiotics for four years. You know, I was seeing people who had been on antibiotics for acne, who were coming in with really, really problematic GI issues as a result of that. So it just felt like you got to put it out there. And the crazy thing, none of the stuff in the book is so like out there. It's basic stuff that we know. But at the time, I remember I was I was at Georgetown and I got called into my chairman's office and he said that somebody had complained that, you know, had heard me like on a radio program or something and said like, who is this hippie doctor at Georgetown telling people soda is not good for you? And it was like a surgeon in North Carolina who was incensed and was like demanding that the hospital fire me because I had written in the book. I mean, good thing that at that time I already had my practice. So I was voluntary faculty, but the hospital was like, we're not firing anybody because can you imagine I had said things about soda being bad for us? And he was like, that's nonsense. So, you know, it wasn't even that long ago, but I think it's a lifetime in terms of what people know and what we accept and the public awareness around a lot of these things. Hello, friends, and welcome back to The Light Watkins Show, where I interview ordinary folks just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path, their purpose, or their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact the lives of many others who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've directly benefited from their work. Today, I'm in conversation with Dr. Robin Chukin. So Dr. Robin is a Jamaican-born gastroenterologist out of Washington, D.C. What that means is she works primarily with the gut. 
And she and I met many years ago at a wellness conference where she had just published her first book, which was called Gut Bliss. And it was all about the impact that the microbiome in our gut has over our immune system and overall health. And as a Western trained doctor, Dr. Robin used to think that diet and lifestyle had very little to no impact on the GI tract and that any suggestion that it did was pretty much hocus pocus. But after performing over 17,000 colonoscopies and treating thousands of patients, many of whom began experimenting with dietary changes as a result of seeing polyps in their colon, Dr. Robin had seen some undeniable results and she went on a mission to help people heal gut imbalances with diet and lifestyle changes such as eating more plants and living a little dirtier. You heard that right. Dr. Robin encourages less hand sanitizer, less bathing, less time indoors, and more time in nature, more open windows, more sunlight, more movement, more exposure to germs. And what she's seen in her work is that the more contact you have to raw natural environments, the stronger your gut flora becomes and the better your immune system works. So this ended up being one of the more fascinatingly candid conversations that I've had in a long time on this podcast. We talked about everything from pooping to feeling bloated to not using deodorant to the effects of the birth control pill on the gut. In addition to the effects of alcohol and gut health, why hangovers are actually a good thing, the importance of sleep, what it means to have a runny nose, why having a dog could be the best thing for your immune system, why you should get rid of mouthwash, and much, much more. Although Dr. Robin is obviously a doctor, this is not medical advice, and even if some of her suggestions resonate with you, you should still seek out the advice of your primary care physician, especially if you're in the middle of a treatment for a serious medical condition. Otherwise, I think you're going to get a ton of good information out of this conversation or at least some thought-provoking information. So get ready to learn how almost everything we thought we knew about being clean was at best not the full story and at worst, it was completely backward. Introducing Dr. Robin Chudkin. Dr. Robin Chudkin. It's such a pleasure to have you on my podcast and to see you digitally. I think the last time we saw each other, was it at Mind Body Green? Is that the last It time? was. It was Revitalize in, in like 15 in or 16 no. or something no, like I'm that. Trying to, well, I think it was, I don't think it was that long ago. I think it was maybe for me, book-wise, after Gut Bliss, but before the Microbiome Solution. So right. I want to yeah, say it was- just come out with Gut Bliss. Yeah. So, so Gut, Gut Bliss was, was 2013. 2013. 13. Okay. Microbiome solution was 2015, so I, I so feel it like would have been like 14 or 15. Yeah, 14 or 15, and I, I, that's where I met all the cool kids, you and Rich Roll, <laughs> Rich Roll and, yep. and Whitney and Danielle from Sakara and Joe Cross. Yep. And the the cool thing is, like, I'm still in touch with with so many of the people I met there. I mean, I feel like I, mm-hmm. you know, corny as it sounds, like I made good friends there. Yeah, I remember seeing Rich Roll at the Ace Hotel not long after that event. This is like, again, 2015, 14. I had just come out with my first book. He was in there at like midnight editing his podcast. And so we connected. We didn't really connect at the Revitalize, but we connected at the Ace Hotel. And that's how I ended up getting on his podcast for the first time. But you've been on his podcast several times. You've been on all those people's podcasts. No, no, I've been on twice. So I was on for the second <laughs> book, Microbiome Solution. 
And he was in DC that time. He came to my house and that was really fun. And we're probably chatting for an hour when he realized he wasn't recording. He's like, wait, we've got to actually capture this in the podcast. Okay, yeah. And then I went out to LA back in September and saw his very cool studio now and got to do mm-hmm. it in person, which was which was really great. But it's amazing how I think that small group of people, how much impact you've had, you know, the work that you've been doing and just sort of plugging away at it, just putting out consistently good, I hate to use the word authentic, but that's what it is, right? Like non-salesy, just let me put this out there because I think it could help someone. So it's a good model. And we would have probably been maybe the only Black people there, right? Maybe like Three or four of us. I think we were. Shaman Durek, was he there? Was he there yet? Because he's been to some ones after. I don't think so. I think it was you and I and maybe one other person. Yeah. Maybe some uh, functional medicine doctors in San Francisco or something like that. One of the things that struck me, though, was how healthy everybody looked. And I think about my medical conferences where people often don't look healthy and I think about the food (laughs) and you're getting, you know, maybe if you're lucky, some like nasty looking turkey sandwich and chips and a soda. Like, I'm like, I don't eat any. I mean, I'll take the chips. That's hospital food. What are you talking about? Exactly. But that's what they serve at medical conferences. And then you're eating the food in a session. You know, they're talking about interleukin 10, some like really some medical minutia that you're not really interested in. You're eating this horrible food, trying to pay attention. And I remember looking around at all the people at Revitalize and thinking, these people look like they're doing the right thing. They're living differently. I was really struck by that. I remember coming back and telling my husband, my husband was like, what kind of boondoggle is this? This is a meeting? What What are you like, you know, drinking green juices all day and <laughs> doing meditation sessions? And I was like, no, this is actually like, we need to take a leaf out of this book. We should be doing more of this stuff in the medical community. But it was really eye-opening for me coming out of very conventional medical training and background Mm -hmm. and being at these meetings where the whole idea of wellness wasn't at all on the radar, wasn't part of the DNA of these events at all. So it was, it was really great. I love to start off talking about your origin story and just taking it way back to little Robin, you know, as you were a kid, we're talking like six, seven years old. Did you have any favorite toys or activities? You were in Jamaica at the time, right? I was, but like, you can't ask me about Arjun's story without me telling you the actual origin, which always horrifies my daughter. I told this to one of the security guys at TSA who was Scottish and she's like, mom, oversharing. So my real origin (laughs) story is that my father is an orthopedic surgeon. He's Jamaican of Indian extraction, a family from India, but he grew up in Jamaica. And he was in Edinburgh training at the Royal College of Surgeons, finishing up his orthopedic training. And my mother was at home in Jamaica with my older sister and my older brother. And we're all, we're, my brother's maybe two years older than me. My sister's three years older. So we're pretty close in age. And she came for a short conjugal visit, shall we say. And when she came to visit and he was living in a little, you know, one room in Edinburgh studying for these exams, heated by a kerosene lamp. And he was too shy to go out and buy prophylactics. So here I came. So she came back to Jamaica. A lot of people didn't know that she had been up to visit him. And then she was pregnant and he was still in Edinburgh and people were sort of like, hmm, (laughs) you know, Winston is in Edinburgh and Cripsy is here pregnant and what's going on? So my origin story is my dad was too shy to go and buy condoms. And uh, (laughs) when my mom came to visit 
in Edinburgh. And here I am. So he's the father of your siblings, though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my dad. So he's okay. so he, all of he, us. They were together. He just they happened were together. to be together. Exactly. They were together. He studies. had gone up to do his fellowship, which was like six months. Right. And right. she had gone to visit him. What were you and your brother and your sister getting up to when you were a kid? We were getting very dirty. My father's mm-hmm. father, my grandfather, who had come to Jamaica as an indentured laborer. So you probably know that when they abolished slavery, which they abolished a little bit early in the Caribbean, but then they swapped it out. It was like, fooled you. They swapped it for something called indentured labor, which is basically they brought a lot of young men in particular and boys from India. And when I say brought, I'm saying that kindly, took and brought them to the Caribbean to work on sugarcane plantations, often with no pay to you know work for decades to pay off your passage. And my grandfather came and he worked on a sugarcane plantation So my dad growing up had never, you know, he lived in a little shack with his six brothers and sisters, never had indoor plumbing or wore shoes or drove in a car. And then he won a scholarship every year, the Vare Trust, which was the trust that ran all the plantations. They gave a scholarship to one child to attend a British boarding school. And my dad won that scholarship. And that completely changed the course of his life and my life. Went to British boarding school, went to university, studied in Edinburgh, became an orthopedic surgeon and lifted his family out of poverty. And then my grandfather also left the sugarcane plantation. He was a very enterprising man, not well-educated, but super smart. And he had bought land of his own. The sugarcane plantation people told him, like, you can't have all these animals on our land and you can't be growing food for your family. So he left. He literally packed up the seven children, including my aunt, who was a baby at the time, on a couple of mules and built a house and built a very successful, built up his own sugarcane farm, 500 acres. So we spent a lot of time on the farm, running around, dirty, swimming in this lake called Vidac that I think was some sort of permutation of viaduct, I think, but we called it Vidac. And we would jump in there and splash around because we'd been told they were crocodiles and that if you splashed, it would scare the crocodiles. I don't know if they were crocodiles, but we had great fun jumping in and splashing and walking around barefoot. I distinctly remember having pinworm, you know, who won't talk too much about that, but night itch and so on and being diagnosed with pinworm because I was barefoot all the time on my grandfather's farm. They were my dad's family's Hindu, so they didn't eat cows, they didn't eat beef, but they also didn't eat pork. So he had goats and he had hundreds and hundreds of goats and he ate mutton and chickens and things like that, geese. And when each of the grandchildren were born, when each of us were born, he would give us a goat. And I think my goat's name was John, but I'm also pretty sure that my parents curried that goat and ate it. And when I would say, where's John? They would just point to a random goat and go, there he is. You know, John would change colors. He'd be white and brown and black and he was a chameleon. So I think the goat, I think my goat got eaten. But when we think about it, you know, we grew up eating a lot of food from that farm that was organic by definition. It was just growing there. Nobody was doing anything to it. Mangoes, Mm -hmm. coconuts, pineapple, My grandmother had a little shop for the people who worked on the farm, and she sold things like rum and sugar and rice, tobacco, and maybe some split peas because they made a lot of dal, but but everything else pretty much she grew. So we lived in Kingston. We were city people, but we would spend a lot of time 
out on the farm. I remember a funny story. My sister's about three and a half years older and she's very cool. And I wanted to do everything that she did. So we would go and spend the weekend there and she would invariably get up really early and go right around the farm with my grandpa on the tractor. And then I would wake up and she'd be gone and I would be all like, well, where is she? And when is she coming back? So I devised this way of I would tie my nightgown to her nightgown while she was sleeping in the bed next to me. And when she woke up, it would tug me awake. And I remember her being so pissed about this, like, why are you tying us together? But it was my way of making sure I didn't get left behind. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. There's a stereotype about Jamaicans, right? They love to work. Five jobs. Multiple jobs. So what what (laughs) what was the operating philosophy in your family growing up? on this farm with your dad and your mom? Yeah. So we didn't grow up on the farm. Again, we lived in the city. We would visit. And, you know, my dad, he likes to garden and stuff like that, but he's, you know, if you met him, he's got that sort of personality and mindset of a surgeon, doesn't like things to get too dirty. I never felt any pressure growing up academically or anything like you, you must be a doctor, you must do this, but I think it must've been in the ether. You know, I don't think it's an accident. My brother is a surgeon. I'm a doctor also. My sister's a federal judge. So somehow it kind of, you know, we all ended up pursuing higher education, if you will. But I don't remember it ever being, you know, this sort of thing of like, this is something you must do. I think it just was a little bit in the air. My mom actually ended up going to law school late in life. So my sister was a second year law student and my mom was a first year law student. And so we were all, you know, we were all like at one point, I think my brother and I were in med school and my mom and my sister were in law school. I think my dad was paying a lot of school fees, but I think it must've been this sense for my dad of education as this way of, again, for him, lifting himself and his family out of poverty. And if he hadn't won that Veritrust scholarship, he would have probably been cutting sugarcane or, Mm. you know, maybe working with my grandfather on his farm. So I think that was just something that we absorbed. 
you graduated early from high school. Was that a normal common thing or is that exceptional? Yeah, I, I think it, no, I think it, I started a little bit early because I'm the youngest of three. And as you probably gathered from that story of me tying my nightgown to my sister, I did not like to be left behind. So when my brother and sister went off to school, I really wanted to go. They went to this wonderful, sweet little school called Mrs. Langley's Preschool. And so my mom asked Mrs. Langley, she said, well, could Robin come? So I think I was two. And, you know, I started learning to read and write and things. So when I got to our regular school, Mona Preparatory School was a school, elementary school, I knew some things. And here's the thing, Light. I had this aha moment reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. You probably read Outliers. And for your listeners who might not be familiar with it, one of the things he talks about early on is the Canadian hockey team and how the majority of them have early birthdays, like they're born in January and February. And that's because they start playing hockey at a really young age. And at age three, if you're three in January or three or four in January versus not turning three or four till December, that's a whole year's difference in terms of size and scale, just your coordination. And so the kids with the earlier birthdays often get selected because they're a little more advanced because they're older. And that how this turns into this sort of self-perpetuating thing of like, they're better. And I had this aha moment and I was like, wait, I'm not actually smart. I just started school early. That's all it was. (laughs) Cause you know, my whole life, it was sort of like, you know, I, had been sort of a high achiever in school and done well. And I realized, no, I just started school early. That's all it was. So here's how it worked. I started school early. By the time I got to kindergarten, I'd already been in school a couple of years. I knew how to do some things. Like I, I knew how to write and I probably knew how to read a bit. And so I was, I was a little bit ahead. And then the teacher said, oh, this one's smart. Like, and then I liked that, the attention of like, you know, being a little bit ahead and being smart and, And it just kept going. So, you know, it really shows that positive reinforcement. And I think about kids, there have been all kinds of experiments of social experiments where they tell teachers that kids are gifted and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So as a result of that, and my bubble being burst by Malcolm Gladwell in his book, of like, you just started school early, but I think it really it emphasizes that point of that positive reinforcement, especially for young kids, right? And telling them like that they are smart because then they are, they become smart. They want to be smart. You took a gap year after you graduated where you lived in Europe for a while in France and Spain. So we actually left Jamaica when I was 14 and moved to the Bahamas. Jamaica at that Mm -hmm. time in the late 70s and 80s, there was a lot of political violence. There were also restrictions on foreign currency. At that point, my sister was in college in the U.S. And you were only allowed to take out 50 U.S. dollars from the country. So even if you had a lot more money, the bank would only sell you 50 U.S. dollars. So to find you know, that my sister was in college in the U.S., it did not cost 50 U.S. dollars. So you had to buy money on the black market and sort of find a way around, increasing political violence. And so my family decided to migrate. They wanted to stay in the Caribbean. And my dad had taught a couple of the surgeons who were in the Bahamas. And they said, we need an orthopedic surgeon here. We don't have one. We want you to come to the Princess Margaret Hospital and be the consultant orthopedic surgeon. And we can still go to the beach and play tennis and do all the things we like to do living in the Caribbean. So we moved there. And I was in school there for a little bit and then did that gap year in France Mm -hmm. and Spain. 
you initially thought about becoming an orthopedic surgeon. Did your dad talk shop at home, like at nights, dinner and all that or not? No, no, he didn't like. But what happened is, you know, Jamaica's a small place. So we'd go to the movies or we'd go somewhere and somebody would invariably come up to him and say, Doc, you know, you feel like somebody who'd had really bow legs and he straightened them and be like, I could walk now. And remember, and this is something I'm very proud to talk about as a Jamaican, we have free health care in Jamaica. Mm. We have universal access, my poor little country of 3 million people. So my dad was at the university hospital full time. But then when he went into private practice, he stayed at the university. So he had his free clinic at Kingston Public Hospital in the university hospital where you could see him for free, or you could come to his private office and pay and maybe see him a little faster. But same person. So when we would be out as kids, I just remember people coming up to him and saying, you know, like, you fix this. And it seemed like beyond just providing care, like he actually, it was like a before and after, you know, like for something he had done. And so I I thought, gosh, that sounds great. Like you can actually fix a problem, something that somebody's born with or something that someone develops. So my brother had become an orthopedic surgeon. He's a couple of years older than me. And I was like, yeah, I'm definitely going into the family business. And that was that plan was foiled within about mm, seven or eight minutes of my orthopedic rotation, where I realized like there's some serious carpentry going on here, which was fine. But I also felt like there's a lot of other stuff in medicine that we don't seem to be focused on in this orthopedics rotation. And I realized that that wasn't, but that began like a whole process of elimination of what do I not want to do? And there are things I love, like I loved urology, but urology is a lot of older men with prostate problems who are not really excited to drop trowel for a young woman, right? They're like, you don't have a prostate. I don't think you get this. So urology seemed like it was going to be challenging. I liked OBGYN, but I'm a little bit, I'm sort of like a neat, a little bit type A. And OBGYN, you know, babies were just popping out. I'd be like, wait, wait, I'm not, you know, like I've not prepared the area yet. And the baby is like splashing out. So OBGYN was a little unpredictable. (laughs) And let's see, ophthalmology. I could never be an ophthalmologist because I could never see the retina. So they'd give you this ophthalmoscope light and they're, you know, they hold it up and you have some dials and then they're like, do you see the retina? And I'm like, I think I see the retina. I never saw the retina, not once. I'm like, I don't think I can be an ophthalmologist because I can't see the retina, which is what we're supposed to be looking at a lot of the time. So a little bit of a process of elimination. I mean, I knew I didn't want to be in a field where my basic bar was if the neighbor gets sick, I want to know what to do. So certain things like radiation oncology, too specialized, you know? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be the kind of doctor who neighbor got sick or just a couple months ago, we were coming back from Turkey this summer. I had my headphones in watching something streaming. Maybe it was last season of Homeland. And my husband nudges me and he goes, I need a doctor. And of course, I'm in sweats, hair up in a bun, you know, <laughs> looking sneakers and some comfy clothes. So, you know, my husband signals, puts the call light on and the flight attendant comes over and looks at me. And the first thing she goes to, she goes, you're a doctor? And I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> she's like, do you have any verification? And I think that's what they do, right? I mean, they can't just have somebody claiming they're a doctor. So I was like, yes. And I show her and she was like, okay. 
So it was a woman who was a flight had been coming from Pakistan, stopped in Istanbul where we got on. And it was a woman coming from Pakistan from a wedding who lived actually near where we lived. She lived in Virginia. We live in DC and she started having chest pain. And so they're looking at me like, do we need to make an emergency landing somewhere in the Atlantic with this, you know, huge plane with 700 people and talk about like the sweat starts rolling down, right? But it turned out she was diabetic and she had not, for some reason, had not taken her medication, did not have it on the plane with her. She had it in the lug in her luggage, in her checked luggage. And she'd been eating a lot on the flight. And so we were able to do a finger stick glucose and see that her glucose was really high and figure that out. And then there was another emergency a couple hours later with a young woman in first class from Nigeria who was vomiting. And so the first thing I do, and her father was a businessman was with her. So the first thing I do is I go into the bathroom with her. I lock the door. I'm like, are you pregnant? <laughs> and she was like, no. It's like, okay. <laughs> so that was an exciting flight. So again, this is sort of a roundabout. I digress, but I wanted to be the kind of doctor where if something was going down. I could get in the vicinity. I can, and I actually have a long history of treating people on flights. I was going to Australia one time on Qantas. Somebody had chest pain. Again, so I seem to be in the right place at the right time on planes, but but that was important to me. And gastroenterology appealed to me for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's men, women, young, old, everybody has a GI tract. And it seemed even at the time before the gut was cool 30 years ago, but it's right in the center of your body. You know, it was like this organ is sort of our engine, right? This is where we get our fuel from. So this organ has to be important. And not to say that other organs aren't important, they're all important, but the gut seemed very central to me even back then. When I did my training, my specialty, if you will, within gastroenterology was inflammatory bowel disease and is. So two autoimmune diseases, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And I didn't really have this sort of female leaning practice when I was doing my training. But when I came to Georgetown for my first job out of my training, They'd not had a woman on the faculty before in the GI department, which seems a little strange in 1997. But what you have to realize that in the up until that time, there weren't a lot of women in GI. We were, I think, about 6% of the profession, even though when you look at people who were seeking help for GI problems, about 70% are women, but only it was about 6% of the docs. So we had this weird dichotomy. So when I came, I had lots of women who were interested in seeing a, a female GI doc. So I kind of had a built-in practice and I started to become really interested in the sort of female GI tract and how it differed from the male GI tract and some of these different things. So when I first opened my practice, when I left Georgetown to go into private practice, my practice was called Digestive Center for Women. Then after a couple of years, I realized hmm, about 30% of my patients are male and maybe they feel a little awkward coming to a practice called Digestive Center for Women. So I renamed, we sort of did business as Digestive Center for Wellness, recognizing that, you know, women are probably fine coming to a practice called Digestive Center for Wellness. They don't care if it says woman or not, but it, it just, you know, it felt like a little bit of a heavy lift for my male patients to come to Digestive Center for Women. And even though there are some really significant differences between the female and the male digestive system, my main interest at the time, which was GI autoimmune diseases, are definitely equal opportunity employers affecting men and women equally. And then my more recent interest over the last decade and a half in the microbiome, again, something that really affects everyone. 
one of my intentions with conducting these interviews is to kind of not only educate the audience about your body of work, but also your internal motivations, your overarching goals and things like that. And I'm just curious, back then, I think it worked a little differently being a doctor. And that was a very highly sought after occupation. It seemed like the doctors were making all the money, doctors and lawyers, things like that. So talk a little bit about the business of being a doctor when you were doing all these colonoscopies versus you taking that leap of faith and opening up your own center for women, which turns into the center for wellness. Was that even a big decision or? You know, it um, really was. was, it, It was a big decision because a lot of my mentors at Columbia and at Mount Sinai, you know, I was definitely on sort of an academic track and we do have this town gown snobbery and elitism in medicine a little bit that, you know, being in the ivory tower at an academic medical center is a way to go. But I'd done that for 10 years and I really wanted to create something that was more useful beyond doing colonoscopy and having a 15 minute visit in the clinic with people. I wanted, when I opened my practice, I had a biofeedback practitioner and nutritionist. We had a massage therapist for a brief period of time. I was able to really, you know, spend an hour with patients talking about stuff. But the way the reimbursement works in a field like gastroenterology is that gastroenterologists can and do make a lot of money doing procedures because typically the gastroenterologist owns the endoscopy suite where it's being done or they're a part owner. So they're getting the facility fee, they're getting the physician's fee, they own the pathology, they're getting the pathologist's fee, and they own the anesthesia. These are all people who work for them typically. So they're getting facility fee, physician fee, pathology, anesthesia. So they're making a lot of money doing a 15-minute procedure. And even though I was at an academic medical center, so I didn't have ownership in any of that, we're still very well reimbursed for doing procedures. And I was doing probably 30 or 40 colonoscopies a week. But what I found was I didn't have time. I mean, if you wanted to come see me for a colonoscopy, I could get you in next week. But if you wanted to come see me to actually solve your medical problem, you had to wait six months. And that just didn't seem right because the procedure really was not usually solving the problem. I mean, it was good to screen people for colon cancer or to maybe assess the activity of their Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. But, you know, if you were coming to me with abdominal pain and bloating or something, the answer wasn't usually at the end of the scope. And so Mm -hmm. I wanted to create a practice where there was more opportunity to sort of roll up the sleeves and do a little bit of forensics and also to apply some therapeutic solutions beyond just colonoscopy. But the irony is, you know, people think of leaving academic medicine and going into private practice to make more money. I left academic medicine to go into private practice to probably make half of what I was making, but I was happy. I was very happy. And that's sort of always been my motto, like, you know, poor and happy, not, not, not poor and happy, but less money and happy. And I felt fulfilled in what I was doing. And just the sort of creative piece, like deciding, you know, biofeedback can be really important for people with sphincter disorders, like inismus, a disorder where instead of relaxing your rectal sphincter, your anal sphincter, when you're trying to have a bowel movement, you're subconsciously tightening it. And so the stool can't come out. And we sent people for a lot of testing around that and they diagnose these sphincter problems, but then we wouldn't have any solutions for them. And so I was like, I want to have a biofeedback practitioner in the office. And I have this wonderful woman, Emily Perlman, who did biofeedback, you know, that you can't do that in a hospital. I mean, just to get a hook, 
hung on the back of the door in the endoscopy suite. You need a staff meeting, IRB approval. I mean, it's just, you know, these are large bureaucracies where you can't just sort of go out and decide, you know, you're going to hire nutritionists and buy feedback practitioners and so on. And not to suggest that hospitals or gastroenterology departments are not places of innovation. We're certainly seeing a lot more innovation now, but 17 years ago, 18 years ago was not a time of major innovation around things like diet and lifestyle in the GI world. I feel comfortable saying that. It was a challenging time though, Light. I was pregnant with our daughter and we were gutting a house down to the studs and I was opening a medical practice all at the same Mm -hmm. time. And I remember the day before the practice opened, like trying to hook up the fax machine. (laughs) Like I was quite pregnant at the time. And a lot of my patients came from Georgetown. So that was good. A lot of the patients I've been taking care of over the past several years did follow me. But one of our first new patients was a nun. And I remember I didn't want to charge her. And my assistant, Betty, was like, oh, no, we're charging her. I was like, I just feel bad. And like, maybe it's bad luck. And she's a nun and she's the first patient. She's like, no, you've got rent to pay and we are charging her. And we did. And she was very nice about it. And she was our patient for a long time. But it was an exciting time just sort of striking out. And I I do think that I was emboldened by my time at Mount Sinai, which was just an incredible community of gastroenterologists. Mount Sinai was at that time was really a GI hospital. Columbia, just up the street, a few miles up the street, we had the Heart Failure Center. And Columbia was sort of known for being a cardiac powerhouse at the time. But Mount Sinai, which is where Dr. Crone, Dr. Burl B. Crone first described Crohn's disease in the 1930s, mm. along with Drs. Oppenheimer and Ginsburg, they had a really strong and long tradition of GI care. And they had the GI care center, which was like two floors of nothing but patients with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. So I like to tell people, because it's true, that I saw more Crohn's and ulcerative colitis in my first day at Mount Sinai than I'd seen in 10 years at Columbia. Now, not to knock Columbia, I saw other great things at Columbia, but the point is for a gastroenterologist at that time, Mount Sinai was a place to be with the GI training. And what I saw was a beautiful melding of people in private practice, but who also were very involved in training and teaching fellows and hospital care. So I didn't see this huge divide between your either academics or your private practice. It seemed like it was very seamlessly integrated at Mount Sinai. So when I decided to leave Georgetown, I did it with that sort of same thing in mind. Like, I'm going to continue to do all my procedures here. I'm going to take call with my colleagues, even though I wasn't being reimbursed for it. I'm going to teach a fellows. And it was that was actually great for me because I felt like I had the best of both worlds. I was able to hang my shingle and be more creative, but I still was very strongly sort of tethered to the hospital and my colleagues there and the surgeons and the radiologists and pathologists and all the other important people who are involved in, in the care. So it was good. And you've done thousands of colonoscopies and you actually said that when you run into people in the store and you don't remember their face as much as you remember their colon, because there's no two colons that are alike. So can you just educate us a little bit about what is a GI tract? Why is the colon so important? Why do people even go to get a colonoscopy? And you mentioned Crohn's disease. What are some of the major imbalances that people are experiencing related to gut health? The digestive tract really goes from the mouth to the anus. So we don't think of the mouth as a digestive organ, but really 
even before the food gets into your mouth, just looking at the food or smelling the food can cause your salivary glands to start releasing amylase and lipase. So digestion happens even before the food gets in, but it certainly starts to happen in the mouth. So you have the mouth. I mean, the air, nose and throat docs kind of claim that too, and the dentists and the oral surgeons, the esophagus, which is a long hollow tube and the stuff gets through the esophagus. I mean, gravity helps if you're upright, but even if you're lying down, it's sort of like that inchworm through a sort of vertical peristalsis. And then you come to the stomach and that valve between the esophagus and the stomach is called a lower esophageal sphincter. And that's supposed to squeeze shut after the food goes down the esophagus into the stomach. What happens for a lot of people is that that sphincter opens inappropriately and that causes the contents in the stomach, including stomach acid, to come up into the esophagus. So that's why so many people have acid reflux, heartburn, guard, whatever you call it. The pharmaceutical companies would like us to think that we're overproducing acid, but that's actually not the case. That's a very rare condition called Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. So for the vast majority of us, that sphincter is opening inappropriately because we are doing something we shouldn't be, like too much coffee, too much alcohol, too large a meal, too much fat, overeating, eating too late, all of these things. So that's the first part, the stomach. And then we get into the small intestine. And there's three parts to that, the duodenum, jejunum, and ileum. And we remembered in medical school as dogs jump in. That was what we came up with. I have no idea. I think I'll remember that in my 90s. So it's duodenum. So you have esophagus, stomach, then duodenum, jejunum, and ileum. So in the stomach, the food is getting churned up into small particles called chyme. And you have all these enzymes that are you know, released pepsin and other enzymes. And then it gets down into the small intestine, the first part, the duodenum, and you have some bile being released, which is used to emulsify fats to help the fats be able to get absorbed into the small intestine and lipase and amylase and other enzymes. So a lot of the absorption, particularly the carbohydrate absorption happens in the duodenum and jejunum. And the ileum is the last part of the small intestine, and that's where B12 gets absorbed and bile salts get reabsorbed. So the really cool thing, Light, is that every part of the GI tract has a very specialized role. They all does different things. There are different cells lining it. So for example, in the esophagus, the cells lining the esophagus are squamous cells, and the cells lining the stomach are columnar cells. And the difference is that the stomach is bathed in acid all the time, frequently as acid gets released. So the columnar cells are protected by mucus and they are resistant to acid. But the squamous cells in the esophagus are not. So when that sphincter opens and the acid comes up into your esophagus, that damages the cells of the esophagus because the acid isn't supposed to be there. So every part of the digestive tract has a different job, plays a different role, different things, different kinds of lining, different enzymes. You go from the ileum, now we're in the large intestine or the colon. So duodenum, jejunum, ileum, and then large intestine, also known as the colon. And when the products of digestion hit the colon, they're still pretty liquid and they're very green from all the bile. The main job of the colon is to reabsorb fluid out of that sort of liquid greenish substance to pull fluid back through the wall of the colon and to deposit a lot of dead blood cells, bacteria, et cetera. So that by the time it comes out, ideally it's a beautiful chocolatey brown stool nirvana coming out at the end. So you can see based on what somebody's symptoms are, where the problem is. So for example, people with ulcerative colitis often have diarrhea because the lining is inflamed and they can't reabsorb that fluid back 
through the lining. And so the stools are more liquid. And I think people really change. Don't you think how people don't see the GI tract now as sort of like, ooh, that's gross. I think the GI tract is definitely having a moment. People realize that, you know, the gut immune connection, our microbiome, the gut brain axis, I think people have a different appreciation for it. And I'll tell you, when you're doing endoscopy, particularly doing upper endoscopy, and I do a procedure called deep endoscopy or small bowel enteroscopy, where we use especially long scope and go far down into the small intestine, it's beautiful. I mean, the finger-like projections, a little villi, and you know what that looks like with the fluid. And, and remember, in the small intestine, we're not dealing with poop. It's all liquid. <laughs> so it's it's different. It's thinner liquids. As you get further down, things maybe get a little less beautiful, but when you see these villi in the small intestine and you see how, you know, the peristaltic waves, and it almost looks like coral fronds in the sea waving as the stuff goes down. It, it's really amazing. And you realize like those villi are there to increase the surface area for absorption, right? To the size of several football fields and, and how purposeful it all is. You know, how the bile is made in the liver, it's stored in the gallbladder, it's released just the right amount. It helps the fat come through. So it's beautifully designed. So then what do we get wrong? Like even on the level of science, what have you guys, doctors, researchers, scientists, what have you gotten wrong about the gut? And what are we just now starting to discover about it? And I guess then we'll talk about the general population after that, but talk about the latest innovations and understandings on the highest levels of research and science. I think I would put that into three main categories. The first would be, we have gotten wrong the connectivity of the gut to other organs, gut brain, mm -hmm. gut immune, gut lung, gut heart. We have siloed because that's how we practice medicine. You know, it's like I'm an orthopedic surgeon and I operate on the pinky finger is my specialty, or I'm a gastroenterologist and I only do liver disease. So we're very siloed in medicine and we have overlooked the connectivity and the integration of the gut into all these different organs. And now we're seeing it with diseases, right? We look at, for example, the contribution of microbial imbalance to something like Parkinson's disease. And, you know, I don't think people, certainly when I was in medical school 30 years ago, nobody thought Parkinson's disease was a disease that in some ways originated in the gut. So I think number one, we've sort of missed that connectivity. We've certainly missed the boat on the microbiome and the importance of microbial health. And we, for a long time, were very much obsessed with cleanliness and super sanitizing. And we've not realized how that has created disease, both in eating food that's too clean, living in environments that's too clean, super sanitizing our bodies with a lot of these medications would be the second. And I think the third is that we've just also not realized the importance of diet, how important mm -hmm. that is. I mean, even when I was doing my GI training, patients with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis would ask, well, what about food? And we would tell them, oh, that doesn't matter. And I think about it now and I'm like, how could we tell somebody with a gut condition that what you put in your gut doesn't matter? But doctors still tell people that. I mean, that is very much still the mantra in the GI community is that food doesn't matter. Just use these powerful biologics that, by the way, could cause cancer or serious infection and could even kill you for a disease that will not kill you. And it doesn't matter what you eat. I believed that for so long because that is what I had been taught. And that's what sort of made sense to me, right? It was just about the pharmaceuticals. And, 
And that was such an eye-opener for me experiencing that with patients because it was really these amazing patients who opened my eyes and the experience with my daughter to see that this did not make sense and this was not correct. And not to say, I mean, these drugs play an incredibly important role. We are very lucky to have potent drugs like steroids and biologics and other immunomodulating drugs, but we need to use them judiciously and we need to use them after diet and lifestyle changes have failed rather than as first line. You wrote about a woman who had Crohn's disease, who had healed herself, one of your patients who healed herself with diet. Can you give us a little synopsis of that situation that happened? Sure. I remember her really well. And she worked in the radiology department at the hospital. And she and I were about the same age. We were probably around 31 at the time. And she was single. And you know, I just felt like we bonded over being sort of young woman in the hospital, youngish. <laughs> and mm-hmm. She had Crohn's, pretty severe Crohn's, and she was on pretty significant immunosuppressive drugs and doing okay with that. And she left. She moved to New Jersey to take another job. And she came back a few years later, and she came up to see me in my clinic. And she looked great. And I asked her, how are you feeling? She was like, I'm great. And I asked her what she was on. And she was like, nothing. And I remember like, literally, like, I think I gasped. I think I went, oh. And I remember giving my whole spiel that like, oh, that's like driving a car with no insurance, being on no drugs, like that's dangerous, like something could happen. And I remember like like feeling anxious about it, that like, "Mm, this doesn't seem like a good idea. And then I scoped her and it was normal. I mean, her Crohn's had melted away. And then I got really interested. I was like, what is that diet you're doing? And it was an early version of one of the low-complex carbohydrate diets, sort of like a, I would say a gentle paleo, specific carbohydrate diet, but she was not, you know, you can, you can interpret some of these diets different ways. You can interpret it as bacon and eggs for breakfast, chicken for lunch, steak for dinner with a few broccoli florets, or you could interpret it as she was doing as I'm going to take out the dairy and the gluten and the refined sugar and all the processed carbohydrates. And I'm going to eat mostly fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds and some animal protein. And so that's what she was doing. And she was having fantastic results. And she was the first patient who really, I got to see not just subjectively with how she was feeling, but objectively with her colon and just marveled. And then it was off to the races from there. And your daughter, you said you'd given birth to your daughter around that time. You had a C-section. So talk a little bit about that connection between the rationale behind getting a C-section and what people are missing out on when that happens. That first patient was sort of the beginning of my interest. And I, I remember there was a meeting in Capri, Italy that I wanted to go to an all expense paid meeting. And so I like did a little survey about complementary and alternative medicine so I could get to go to the meeting. So I was starting to see, but I wasn't sort of full on. And then it was really several years later. So I was pregnant with our first and only child, our beloved Sydney, and was healthy. I was 39. So I was, you know, what they call advanced maternal age, but super healthy and went into the hospital all excited and thinking that my baby's going to be born during the Oprah Winfrey show at four o'clock. I just was like, I just know this is when she's coming. (laughs) And that did not, this did not happen. And so maybe around 10 or 11, they said, you know, we're going to give you some drugs to help move things along. 
because labor isn't progressing. And they use terms like this that, you know, labor isn't progressing that kind of make you, even as a physician, feel like something's wrong, where really the baby's just taking her time, you know? And and I write, I think it's in the microbiome solution, I write, you know, a, a process that takes 40 weeks should not be rushed, right? This takes time. But you don't know that. I mean, even as a medical professional, I don't know that. And I was at my own hospital, Georgetown, getting the VIP treatment, and even before that, you know, labor can vary the pain for different people. My labor was hot. I was in pain. And so they offer you the epidural and you're like, oh, absolutely. You, you make this pain go away. Nobody tells you again, oh, the epidural means you're more likely to have a C-section. But, you know, so I get the epidural. I was very grateful for it. Then they offer up, you know, labor isn't progressing. So they offer up a drug, Pitocin, to help stimulate the uterus. Nobody tells you again that that's more likely to result in a C-section. And then finally C-section. And I tell you, Light, this was 17 and a half years ago. This was 2005. I had zero, zero idea or knowledge of the risk of a C-section beyond obvious surgical risks, right? This is surgery, bleeding, infection, et cetera. Nothing. The idea that C-sections are associated with an increased risk of allergies, of asthma, of autoimmune disease and of obesity in babies born via C-section was completely not on my radar, nor was it on the radar of the OBGYN, I can tell you. And I think, unfortunately, it still is not on the radar of a lot of OBGYNs. So, you know, there's an efficiency to C-section and hospitals are about efficiency. And then when the baby comes out during the C-section, and I, I had a wonderful team taking care of me. I believe the anesthesiologist was somebody I had done a colonoscopy on him. The OBGYN, his wife was my patient. I mean, I was amongst friends. And these are all wonderful people who are working hard to take care of me and taking good care of me. So not to suggest this was anybody's fault. This was how medicine was back then. Nobody was doing this any differently. When the baby comes out, so normally during a vaginal birth, as the baby's head crowns, have you ever seen any births light? Not, not live, but yes, I've seen a uh, video. Yeah. yeah. So you see the baby's head turns posteriorly, turns down, and it turns down to face the tush to swallow a mouthful of microbes to become colonized with those important founding species. And so babies who are born via C-section miss out on that important step and they're colonized with hospital-acquired Staphylococcus aureus, which you can tell does not sound like the kind of bacteria you want to be colonized with as opposed to being colonized with the mother's healthy bifidobacterium, et cetera. And when the baby comes out via C-section too, they kind of sterilize a baby. I mean, they take the stuff and they wipe off everything when probably we should be taking some microbes from the mother's vaginal and perineal area and dabbing the baby, right? And Gloria Domingo Belez has popularized this idea of vaginal seeding as potentially a way to help babies born via C-section get some of that benefit. And the other thing that happened, I had a fever because I had the flu that year. And our daughter, Sydney, was fine. But because I had a fever, they said, let's just, to be safe, put her in the NICU in the neonatal ICU. And so I'm like, oh, great, you know, going along. This sounds fantastic. And they said, because you have a fever, we're going to do a fever workup on her. We're going to do a spinal tap and blood cultures. And I'm thinking again, proactive, fantastic. And then they said, and we're going to give her some antibiotics just in case. So I'm like, this all sounds good. I know nothing about 
the difference between the C that she just took a major hit being born by a C-section and not being colonized. I know nothing about what antibiotics at birth can do to a baby's just burgeoning microbiome, much less a C-section baby. My whole perception of this stuff is this is modern medicine and this is all fantastic. So she goes to the NICU, she gets two potent IV antibiotics. We finally figure out how to install the car seat and we are taking her home, which that whole thing is just crazy. You're like, I don't really know anything, but you're just letting me leave the hospital with this baby. I mean, my husband and I were watching the closed circuit TV about like how to bathe the baby. We're like, oh, you leave the cord on when you bathe the baby. And my husband's looking at me. He's in counterterrorism. He's like, aren't you a doctor? Like, you don't know. I'm like, no, they didn't tell us this. Like, I could take your polyps out, but I don't know anything about this. So we're like eyes glued, like watching how to wash the baby. And I wasn't reading any of those books, you know, what to expect, all that. I'm like, oh, those books just terrify you. I'm not going to read any of that. So I'm calling my sister, my older sister, who's now a federal judge at the time. She was a lawyer. She knows everything about everything. So I'm calling her and she's giving me medical advice about the newborn because she already had two boys. So that's how it went down. And then, you know, the next three or four years, light, unfortunately, were just a blur of our daughter being really sick, unfortunately, all the time, like every month she was either recovering from an infection, had an infection or about to be sick. And we were new parents. So we had no idea like that this was not, no, I mean, I had a sense, like, I was like, this doesn't seem normal. And I would talk to my friends who had babies, but she was sick all the time. And each time the really lovely pediatrician would kind of look at the last page on the chart and say, oh, okay, she was on amoxicillin last time. Okay, let's go with Keflex this time. And so it went and she was just constantly sick. And so finally, she was a few years old, maybe she thinks she's about three and she'd had another infection and a cold. And we'd also, she'd had been having a lot of air infections and she had fluid in the airs. And we went to see again, this wonderful pediatric allergist who said, well, we're just going to put her on antibiotics. And I said, well, for how long? And she said, well, until the fluid goes away, you know, it could be a few months. We had, she kept having recurrent strep. We'd gone to see a pediatric infectious disease doc. Again, lovely, lovely woman. And she said, well, we're just going to put her on suppressive antibiotics. And I was like, what's that? And she's like, we're just going to keep her on antibiotics. And so Again, I still did not put two and two together. I'm still thinking, okay, well, the antibiotics are going to treat this stuff. But I'm starting to notice the history in a lot of my Crohn's patients that a lot of them had a similar history of frequent antibiotics in childhood. And we're starting to see articles coming out around this time showing that multiple rounds of antibiotics in children are associated with autoimmune diseases like Crohn's and others. And so finally, when she's about... I'm going to say around three, she had had this hacking cough after an infection, likely viral infection, sort of post-viral bronchitis. And my husband took her to the doctor. I boycotted. I was like, I'm not going. This is just ridiculous. And she came home with a nebulizer machine for asthma and four prescriptions for a steroid, an antibiotic, an antihistamine, and an inhaler and stickers. And my husband was like, yeah, so she has asthma. And I was like, no, she doesn't. <laughs> and I packed it all up and I was like, okay, we are going to do things differently. And I, I'm always quick to say that I recognize as a physician, I had 
expertise and training to allow me to make that decision for my daughter. And I would not recommend that somebody abandon <laughs> medical care or find a new pediatrician or have a pointed discussion with a pediatrician. But I counted up and saw that she'd been on over 20 courses of antibiotics and she wasn't yet in preschool. And I realized that there was a clear link between the antibiotics and her inability to recover and her susceptibility to just getting sick all the time. And, you know, had that discussion with the pediatrician and we just sort of went down a different road for a while of more, more you know, when they're little, you can get lentil doll burgers and green smoothies into them with no complaint, right? It's when they're teenagers that it's a little bit more challenging. But we went down a different road of just trying to ride out some of these illnesses, particularly some of the viral illnesses that she'd been treated with antibiotics for. And, and as you know, antibiotics don't have any utility against viral illnesses. But so often it's this sort of, well, just in case and just in case. And eventually she got better. I mean, it, it literally took a few years. But she did. She became resilient. And she, you know, gets sick like the average kid. But, you know, before she'd be sick for three weeks, and then she'd be well for two weeks and sick for another month. I mean, that was the sort of cycle. So again, it, it's one of those things I'm always fantasizing like, oh, if I were to do it again, I do an at-home birth with a doula in one of those plastic wading pools. And, you know, that's what I would do. <laughs> and no intrauterine monitor or Pitocin or, or any of this stuff. And Again, quick to point out that it is wonderful that we are a C-section, save lives, mothers' lives and babies' lives every day. And this kind of monitoring can be really useful. But I think in my case and in a lot of other cases, it was over-medicalized, the antibiotics and all of that. And by well-meaning people, physicians, nurses, others who just didn't know, none of us knew really at the time. I mean, even though the science was pointing in that direction, we really didn't have that body of clinical knowledge to say definitively, these things are a problem. And so again, you know, I'm always wishing for that do-over, but at the same time, I'm grateful, right? I'm grateful because it really opened my eyes to the connection between how tender the microbiome is in those first thousand days of life. That's when it's just struggling to ripen. And in my case, because of the antibiotics I'd been given for this potential flu, my breast milk dried up after about a month. And that's another important part of the developing microbiome is these ingredients in breast milk, human milk oligosaccharides that literally feed the baby's gut bacteria to help that army, that microbial army blossom and bloom. And so, you know, missing out on that too. And I remember looking at some of these formulas like soy and these ingredients and thinking, oh, this looks a little bit like a chemistry experiment, but that was what was available. So it definitely, I mean, I credit that experience for completely changing my perception about gut health, for really opening my eyes to the understanding of the microbiome and and for being able to help a lot of other patients mm -hmm. understand this sort of microbial contribution, right? And how we have to pay attention to it and how important it is for healing the gut. A handful of years later, you decided to go all in on this, this new or, or publicizing this connection. Not that you were the first one, but writing a book and becoming a public figure is probably a very different thing than being a doctor and doing colonoscopies. So what gave you that? courage to put together a proposal, I imagine, shop it around and put in the time that you would have. Because again, this is not a passive thing. 
you have to be very intentional about writing a book and it takes a long time. <laughs> so talk a little bit about that. You know whereof you speak light. You've done this <laughs> quite a few times yourself. It, yeah. You know, I think you get to this point where you feel like you have something so compelling to say that you can't not say it. I would describe it that way for me, where I felt I have information, some of it sort of hard won through this difficult experience. And we have lots of scientific data to back up what I'm saying. And if I don't say it and I don't put it out there, I'm not being a good human being in a way almost, you know? So I would say I, f- I felt compelled to share that. And because it was so, there was, you know, people just weren't practicing that way. So we're in this weird era where like the doctors were like, oh, that stuff doesn't matter what you eat, blah, blah, blah. But the patients were like, I think it matters. I mean, I was hearing from people who had similar stories. I remember this one young woman I saw and she had had a condition called posterior urethral valves where the urethra has some valves that cause the urine to back up. And so she was having urinary tract infections all the time. And she'd been on literally like four years of antibiotics nonstop. And her gut was so messed up. And I remember thinking like, parents need to know, like, this is not okay. There's a minor procedure they could do to correct this problem, but you can't put your kid on antibiotics for four years. People are being put on, you know, I was seeing people who had been on antibiotics for acne, who were coming in with, you know, really, really problematic GI issues as a result of that. So it just felt like you got to put it out there. And the crazy thing, Light, is that none of the stuff in the book is so like out there. It's basic stuff that we know. But at the time, I remember I was, I was at Georgetown and I got called into my chairman's office and he said that somebody had complained that, you know, had heard me like on a radio program or something and said like, who is this hippie doctor at Georgetown telling people soda is not good for you? And it, it was like a surgeon in North Carolina who was incensed and was like demanding that the hospital fire me because I had written in the book, I mean, good thing that at that time I already had my practice, so I was voluntary faculty, but the hospital was like, we're not firing anybody. Because can you imagine, I had said things about soda being bad for us, and he was like, that's nonsense. So, you know, it wasn't even that long ago, but I think it's a lifetime in terms of, I think, what people know and what we accept and the public awareness around a lot of these things. The cool thing for me and what made it easier and why I think we definitely need to change from within communities is that I was part of the crew. I was a conventionally trained gastroenterologist. I'd been on the board of one of our largest GI organizations. I chaired the training committee. I'd been on the governing board. I was one of the guys in that sense, in that I was an academic gastroenterologist with credentials who had also served in this you know, fairly distinguished capacity within the GI advocacy organization. So they knew me and they knew I was a good doc and I wasn't a wackadoodle. <laughs> so I think they received it differently. And I, I will tell you that the bulk of my referrals come from other gastroenterologists who, who, you know, they've done all the scoping and then they're like, oh, you want to talk about this? We have a doctor for you who can talk about this. We've got to get to the next procedure. But I'm proud of that. I, you know, I'm proud of the fact that I I'm able to put information out there, but still have a really good working relationship with my colleagues because, and I tell people all the time, like, 
you know, when they'll say, well, why didn't my GI doc do this? And I'm like, look, if your GI doc is an asshole, then fire them. But if they're just poorly informed, then just inform them. I was poorly informed back in the day, right? And patients were gracious and patient. And, you know, I did a lot of my own research too. And so my eyes were open. So you've got to have a dialogue. You've got to figure out a way to engage this doctor and get them to see your point of view and figure out how to meet in the middle. Now, if they are, again, just being an asshole, then by all means, find a new doctor. So I think I was able to maintain my standing, if you will, in the GI community as somebody who had a good reputation and had done good work and published a lot of stuff in mainstream journal so that when this came along, it was like, oh, she's kind of going in a different direction. But, you know, we know her and we know she knows what she's doing. But the book writing, it's like you're naked, <laughs> you know, like because it's an opportunity, right, to sort of put your nickel down and say, this is what I think, this is what I believe. And that is incredible to have that opportunity, but it's also terrifying too, because now everybody knows what you think and what you believe. And now everybody, you know, has something to say about it, right? Some criticism, some by far more support than criticism. But even now I'm, you know, I don't do a lot on social media and you and I were chatting before how it's a little awkward sometimes. And if somebody writes something, I, I can get upset. I'm like, they wrote that, like that wasn't nice, you know? <laughs> And by far, it's it's overwhelmingly lovely, but it does make you feel like more vulnerable to put yourself out there. I was an English major in college, actually, so I enjoy the the writing. You know, when mm-hmm. when what you're trying to say clicks, when it comes together, it's like that Rubik's cube clicking into position, and you're like, ah, oh, this yes, finally. You know, five pages later, I finally got to figure out how to say what it was I was trying to say. And of course, like having great editors helps a lot for sure. So the process has been really such a privilege and, and an honor to write these books. Well, the difference in the books I write and you write, so I'm not telling anybody they need to eat more plants, which is hugely triggering for a lot of people anytime you're making dietary suggestions these days, because it's it's as intense as, as politics can be. And I feel like writing a book that is based on research, a lot of people cherry picking their research to justify pretty much whatever they want to say. And it requires walking a sort of fine line between making sure that what you say can be defended. And I can't even imagine like how much in-depth like <laughs> prior research would go into something like that. I remember with the first book, Gutless, I wanted to say something about genetically modified foods. And I was petrified that I was going Mm -hmm. to be sued by Monsanto or trolled. And I remember like that section, I remember, you know, having a conversation with the legal team at Penguin Random House at the time, it was just Penguin and saying something like the risks have neither been proven nor unproven or something a little bit watered down. I mean, that was of the whole book. That was the scariest thing. It was like these folks with deep pockets. I did not want these folks coming after me. But, you know, to get back to the issue about the medical advice, I hang with a lot of vegans. I will just say there are a lot of people out there in the plant-based world, people like the Esselstins and Rich and all kinds of wonderful people and Neil Barnard, who runs a physician's committee for responsible medicine, that I, I just have to say, like these folks are colleagues, they're friends, and they're in it for the right reason. These are people who are not trying to personally enrich themselves with the messaging. They really have something they want to share and they feel compelled to share because it has made, I mean, you think of somebody like Caldwell Esselstyn, who's a cardiothoracic surgeon, he's in his 
eighties. I think he's the same age as my dad, 87. And I think he became plant-based at like 67 or something, you know, when he saw that it was just a revolving door of people coming in for him to pull the plaque out. And he realized like, it's not kale causing this plaque. So those are my people to a large extent, but I also have to explain that I come at the food through a medical lens, not through an ethical or environmental lens. I'm a gastroenterologist. I'm not a climate change expert. I'm not an ethicist. And while I absolutely understand and believe like the way, you know, the industrialization of animals is terribly wrong. I also have to meet my patients where they are. And when I'm seeing a patient or when I'm writing a book, giving medical advice, it's medical advice. It's not ethical advice. It's not environmental advice. It's medical advice. And that advice has to leave room for everybody. And what I have seen in my medical practice with patients with complex autoimmune GI disorders is that you can have some room on the plate for animal protein and still heal the gut. Now, again, there are lots of other compelling reasons why you may not want to, right? Where you might want to boot that animal protein right off the plate. There are excellent reasons. But if somebody's saying to me, doc, I have severe Crohn's disease and I want to heal it with a food as medicine approach and I don't want to become fully plant-based, is that possible? My answer is yes, because I've seen that multiple times. Many of my patients, if not most, are not fully plant-based. But I will also back that up with a quick, we all can benefit from eating more plants, right? And when we think about the microbiome and gut bacteria and the preferred food of healthy gut bacteria like Fecalobacterium prosnitzii and the the end point, which is to create more short-chain fatty acids and more of these healthy postbiotic ingredients, we know how to do that. And it's with fiber. So, you know, it gets a little bit awkward sometimes, but I believe in maintaining that sort of non-denominational approach, right? And I never would want somebody to feel like I couldn't help them or wouldn't help them because of, or same thing, like if they were like, I am not going to give up such and such, it's like, okay, but let's try and increase that. You know, we have to, to really think about meeting people where they are. And I would never want somebody to feel any negativity around that. What I want to do now, if you're into it, is I pulled up many of the more interesting topics to me, and some of them are just phrases out of the book, and do like a bit of a rapid fire thing where Great. I just I, I say what the topic is, and you give me the antiviral gut perspective on Love it. this particular topic. Is that cool? That's perfect. Okay. So you said that we can change our microbes within about 30 hours. How does that work? That's based on a study that was published in the journal Nature around 2014, where researchers from Harvard took nine volunteers and they put them on an Atkins type, basically a kind of pork rinds and prosciutto diet for about a week. And they looked at the microbiome before, during, and after. Then they rested those same volunteers for about five days and they put them on a plant-based diet, jasmine rice, lentils, fruit for snack. And they looked at the microbiome. And they saw that within about 30 hours of food hitting the gut, 
the microbiome was shifting dramatically. The main shift was a decrease in the bilophilia, the bile-loving organisms that are necessary to break down animal protein and animal fat, but can also be associated with some diarrheal illnesses, inflammation, et cetera. The interesting thing about but that study was it wasn't just that the microbiome was changing, the genes were changing too. They saw genes being turned on and off based on the dietary change. So that study was really pretty pivotal. There have been other studies too examining that, but I mean, light, it's such a message of optimism, right? This idea that like in a day and a half, you can be on the path to being a different person microbially, to being healthier, to maybe turning off the road from disease expression. Maybe you have a strong family history of cancer or autoimmune disease or heart disease, and you can be taking that turn for that disease to not be expressed. I mean, it's just overwhelming when you think about it, like how powerful that is. Let's say someone listening to this is on the birth control pill. What do they need to know? Birth control is such a tough one because unwanted pregnancies keep women, particularly women of color, in poverty all over the world. We know that. And so the pill and other forms of hormonal birth control have empowered women around the world to, whether it's to continue in higher education, to get jobs, et cetera. But the reality is that birth control pills, hormone replacement therapy can have an effect on our gut microbiome. And this is one of those things that's very individualized. It's not like antibiotics and acid blockers where we can say for everybody, these drugs are doing a number on your gut. You need to try and get off of them. The hormonal differences vary. So some people tolerate these drugs really well and other people not so much. So in my practice, for example, I never automatically take my Crohn's and colitis patients off birth control, but I definitely tell them, I want you to think about this and see how this is affecting you and see if you think this is making your disease more active. Same for the hormone replacement therapy. That's a very individualized discussion based on your family history of cancer on the one hand, your family history of heart disease on the other hand, your symptoms, particularly vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes, et cetera, vaginal dryness. There's a lot that goes into balancing that out. So that one is a little more on the fence, but it is something that I think for a lot of young women who are experiencing gut symptoms, they may not be thinking about it. So it's an important one to raise. Alcohol. I drink four or five drinks a week. What do I need to know? You are below the number where we start to get concerned. And this is another sort of controversial thing too, because a lot of my people are also in the, any amount of alcohol is a problem. And that's certainly true for some people. For some people, any amount of alcohol is a problem. The first thing I would say is that alcohol is bactericidal. It does kill microbes. Before we had antibiotics, we had alcohol in the operating room. Even now, when you go to get your blood drawn, they use a little alcohol swab to clean your skin. But like anything else, right, it depends on what the background noise is. So if you're an overall healthy person, which I think you are, and you eat a healthy diet and you manage your stress and you get outside in the open air and you get exercise and you do all of those things and you have a drink most days, I think that's absolutely fine. If on the other hand, you're one of my patients who's battling serious Crohn's disease and you've been on a lot of antibiotics and you've eaten a suboptimal diet, and now your gut is totally inflamed, it's probably not okay. So I think that's one of those things that really varies. But I don't think anybody should believe that alcohol is good for the microbiome. I think those studies are deeply flawed and, and not correct. But it can be benign if your general health supports that. Let's take a quick time out and just identify what is a GI problem versus just normal digestive 
you know, I go to the bathroom a couple times a day. Maybe I'm a little bloated after I eat some hummus or something like that. Like, how do you know what you're experiencing is normal versus I need to go see somebody about this? Yeah, no, that's such a great question. And part of that is really being in touch with your body, right? So number one, turn around and take a look. Like you've got to see what your bowel movements look like so that when they look different, you can be hip to that. Some of these problems, we can draw a straight line to the microbiome, but some are mechanical. So for example, women tend to have longer colons than men. We have a deeper, wider pelvis, more of the colon falls down into the pelvis where it has to compete for space with the uterus, the bladder, the fallopian tubes, the ovaries. Men have a more narrow pelvis, more of the colon is in the abdomen where it's roomier. Women, we have lower testosterone levels, so that abdominal wall is not as firm. So women have more bloating and constipation as a result. And that, again, a lot of that is just anatomical. You have hormonal influences. If you are hypothyroid, have an underactive thyroid, you may have slow gut motility, constipation as a result of that. It may have nothing to do with your microbiome. You may have an antiverted or retroverted uterus where it's tipping one way or the other. It's pressing on the bowel. So there's so many things outside of just the microbiome. You may be taking a medication, an iron supplement, a calcium channel blocker for high blood pressure, multiple medications that can cause constipation and some that can cause diarrhea. So the problem could be anatomical. It could be physiological. It could be hormonal. It could be in the medicine cabinet. It could be your diet. You might be eating a lot of dairy. You might be lactose intolerant and you don't know it. So you're having gas and bloating and maybe loose stool as a result of the dairy. So it's really important to be, you know, sort of play medical detective with this stuff and to not just say, oh, my microbiome is off. Let me run out and take some probiotics that probably aren't going to do diddly anyway, but to really try and understand what your body's trying to tell you. And the gut is really good at giving feedback. I was, I was thinking about this and you might've come across this in the chapter on host defenses, where I start by saying our body has our back, right? Like if you go from being a couch potato to trying to run a marathon, you're going to your muscles are going to be like, uh uh-uh, if you overdo it at the gym, if you drink too much. I mean, I I contemplate in that chapter, can you imagine if you didn't have hangovers and you could just drink as much as you want and feel fine? People would die from alcohol poisoning. Our livers would just rot because we get that feedback. Like you either start to feel drunk or more importantly, you feel really terrible the next day and you remember like, oh, let me not do that. Heartburn for most people is feedback. I've eaten too much. I've eaten too much fat in the meal, too late, too large a meal, too much alcohol, and my sphincter has opened up, and now this stuff is coming up. And I mean, I don't have any acid reflux, but if I were to eat a jumbo slice from one of these jumbo slice places in DC, you know, a slice of pizza as big as my head at two in the morning, as I once did many years ago, I would have reflux. I would be sitting up in bed, you know, burping and uncomfortable. So a lot of these things are feedback loops, positive and negative that are designed to keep us safe and to keep us healthy. But instead we're like, okay, I'm going to take this acid blocking medication, block my stomach acid, and I'm going to continue to do this thing that is actually a problem for my health. And then as a result of tampering that down with an acid blocking drug, now you've messed up digestion and you've removed one of your body's main host defenses because now you don't have any stomach acid to unravel viral protein when you swallow it. So obviously I did four years of medical school and residency and GI training and practice. So it, you know, it takes a while to sort of necessarily understand it all. And I still don't understand it all by any stretch of the imagination, but I think you can start 
with doing a little bit of playing around, right? So number one, take a look at your bowel movements. Number two, think about how you feel when you have a bowel movement. You know, do you feel like this is a good, complete bowel movement? And, you know, you should feel pretty good when you get up off the pot. I mean, I personally, when I have a good bowel movement, I want to take a picture because I'm just like, wow, look at that. That came out of me. I feel proud. My husband tells me this Wait, is not you, normal. You take pictures. You and your yes. daughter take pictures of your bowel Well, movements. she doesn't let me anymore. She you just, got a whole she's camera like, roll. privacy. <laughs> it's a problem when they become teenagers, but they're still in my phone. And my husband tells me this is not normal. He goes, no, Robin, people do not feel like taking a picture of their bomb movement, no matter how good it looks. I'm like, but you feel excited, right? Like you want to tell a friend that you had like a 13 inch. And he's like, no, it's not normal. <laughs> but I, I still maintain light. Admit it. Like if you had a 13 inch, like thick as your wrist, like big, I mean, wouldn't you feel excited? Uh, I don't know if excited is the word. <laughs> proud, proud, maybe. I probably feel satisfied. Satisfied. Okay, I'll, I'll go with that. Satisfied. Yeah. <laughs> um, but not like you want to send the picture with the balloons. Coming. No, I'm not going to post <laughs> okay. it on my okay. stories. All right. Okay. <laughs> I, I have not quite um, done that yet. So think about like how do you feel when you eliminate? Because one of the things that causes a lot of problems is incomplete evacuation, incomplete elimination. And a lot of that is related to the fact that we're too sedentary. You know, if you're not moving, neither are your bowels. We're spending a lot of time sitting. Most of us tend to be a little dehydrated and we're not eating enough fiber. So those three things, not enough fiber, not enough movement, not enough water will lead to things backing up, constipation, or more often than not having a bowel movement is an incomplete bowel movement. That's like the new constipation. It's like the new insomnia. People fall asleep, but then they wake up and can't fall back asleep. So constipation, mm -hmm. you have a bowel movement, but it's incomplete. And so think about that. And then some simple interventions, right? Like adding more fiber, like drinking more water and saying, okay, what happens then? Uh, how am I? Am I still good? If you're having bloating or you don't feel good or something, keep a food journal and see, are you feeling... Now, it might not be immediate, but you might see, wow, I ate dairy three days last week and it was a bad week, but then I had no dairy this week and it was a good week or, you know, what is it? And it may not be a morsel of dairy. It may be like I had a pint of Haagen-Dazs and I didn't feel that good versus, you know, I had a little milk in my coffee and I was fine. So I really encourage people to be a little bit of a medical detective when it comes mm -hmm. to their GI tract. I mean, certainly there are red flags that should prompt you to seek immediate medical attention. You're having blood in your stool or on the toilet paper. You need to see a GI doc pronto. You're having you know, significant weight loss. You've lost 10% or more of your body weight without any real change in exercise or diet. You need to worry about that. You're having persistent bloating every day. That can be a sign of ovarian cancer for, for those of us who have ovaries. You're having significant pain. You have fever. These are you know, the sort of red flags that should hip you that, okay, this could be something serious. It could also be something benign, but you want to get that checked out. But if you're talking about a little bowel irregularity, constipation, bloating, some reflux, if you're having reflux. One of the most you know, simple and effective things you can do is just to calorie shift, eat more of your calories early. A lot of people don't realize that the stomach has a bedtime. The gastric contractility and the rest of the gut slows down dramatically once the sun sets. And so if you're eating dinner at eight o'clock, three hours after the sun has set this time of year, and you're uncomfortable and bloated, just eating a larger breakfast and lunch could solve that problem potentially. 
or if you look at the amount you're eating, the stomach is about the size of my fist. And when it's full, it's about the size of open fist like this. So if you're eating, you know, four fistfuls of food for dinner instead of one or two, that might be the problem. And you might need to split your meal. The half time for gastric emptying is about 90 minutes. So you might need to eat sort of like an earlier dinner and then eat the other half of it a little bit later or just save it till the next day. So there are a lot of really simple, benign interventions. I mean, the thing I always want to make sure is that my worst nightmare is to be treating somebody for constipation. It turns out they have colon cancer. So in my practice, I'm very careful about, you know, red flags and let's make sure we've done our due diligence and we're not missing something. But once you've excluded these things, then we can really start to be creative and see using some of these, you know, interventions like lighter dinner, bigger calorie shifting, eating more of our calories earlier in the day, looking at taking out certain foods. And in my first book, Gut Bliss, I talked about sad gas, S-A-D-G-A-S. I mean, it was just sort of a, just worked out that these six things that I wanted to talk about because people often feel like it's something I'm eating, but I'm not quite sure what. So I talked to, just as we know, there are common allergens like nuts and eggs, et cetera. We know there are common things that bloat people. And so I recommend eliminating sad gas soy, artificial sweeteners, dairy, gluten, alcohol, and sugar for a couple of weeks and then add them in one by one or not. But, you know, to see, can you sort of pinpoint like, oh, it's the soy, I'm having a soy latte every day and this is really bloating me and giving me indigestion or it's the dairy or it's the alcohol, whatever it is. So, you know, we're these incredible human machines and sometimes we have to do a little experimentation, a little fine tuning with the machine. What about the importance of pacing and chewing and maybe drinking water with your meals? Does that make a significant difference in your microbiome, how it responds in your, in your entire GI tract or not, not so much? Well, it can make a huge difference for your gut. There's a condition called aerophagia, A-E-R-O-P-H-A-G-I-A, which means air swallowing. And people who are often talking on the phone and eating or they're eating fast, or if you're a mouth breather, let's say you have sinus congestion or a deviated septum and you're a mouth breather, chew a lot of gum, suck on hard candy, all of these things can cause air swallowing. And I've seen people go up like a whole clothing size in a day mm. from air swallowing. And they end up, you know, people who come in and they like feel like the Michelin man or woman, and then they're often burping a lot. That's a typical sign of air swallowing. And the interesting thing, Light, is most people have no idea that it's happening. So I have a wonderful referral group of speech pathologists in the area who I send people to who do a detailed evaluation of people talking and speaking and eating and drinking and can usually figure it out. So that's one of those where it's, you know, so somebody might have that, they might have this like really intense bloating and they're like, oh, I'm sure my microbiome is off, but it's air swallowing. So that's why, you know, I think the microbiome is hugely important. We know that our microbiome is a more unique identifier of us than our own DNA, but it's not responsible for everything that goes wrong. And there are lots of other, again, mechanical things that can happen in the GI tract that people should be aware of. Finishing up the rapid fire, there's one topic that I think are gonna, it's going to surprise a lot of people that you've written extensively about, and that is no mouthwash, no hand sanitizer, and get a pet. What's yeah, the thinking that's right. That? Hand sanitizer can be tricky during a pandemic, but warm water <laughs> and soap is always better because remember, most of these hand sanitizers are antibacterial, and we're talking mm -hmm. about a virus. 
So just using a little bit of warm water and regular soap and sort of scrubbing in between your fingers and washing your hands thoroughly about as long as it takes to sing one verse of happy birthday is going to dislodge way more viral particles, be much more effective when you're coming in from outside and you're concerned about transmission than hand sanitizer. And you're not going to be swallowing triclosan and potential other chemicals in the hand sanitizer. So yeah, this the hand sanitizer, you should skip. I actually have a recipe in the book for like a homemade version of that if you are concerned and want to use that. Mouthwash, same thing. We want those mouth anaerobes, right? We need them. So mouthwash, like killing off this stuff. If you have bad breath, you know, think about dental hygiene and what's going on. Do you have a cavity or something going on in your mouth? Think about what you're eating because that will affect your odor, both your body odor, under pits, groin, all of that. So think about your diet, think about your stress, all of these things can affect it, but don't just sterilize the mouth with this stuff because we need these mouth anaerobes. And the third one was bathing. No, get a pet. Oh, get a pet. But we have to talk about bathing because I have to tell you a little okay. secret. Because <laughs> um, you don't bathe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the like pet, a absolutely. A week, <laughs> no, I, I've, I've ramped it up. But the studies show <laughs> that people who have pets and especially kids who grow up in households with pets, take fewer antibiotics, have fewer infections, are healthier. So we know, you know, as frustrating as it is, a dog comes in, brings all the dirt. So dogs, cows, horses in particular, cats a little less so. Maybe cats are more fastidious and they're cleaner. But yeah, so, you know, if you don't have a dog, then your neighbor's dog, a friend's dog, great to interact with animals, really good for a microbiome. They, they bridge that gap between the soil microbes outside and our often super clean homes. The bathing thing, I've done some experiments there. And a funny thing, I used to spend a lot of time with one of the nurse anesthetists at the hospital, Doug, who's a good friend of mine. And we would have a really fun time goofing around, not during procedures, obviously. (laughs) And I was doing this experiment where I would go to my heated vinyasa flow yoga class where you get super sweaty. It's about 99, 100 degrees and very vigorous yoga. And I would be like, smell me. I, I, you know, go dry off, put on my scrubs, come into work. And I'd be like, I smell. And he would always say, you don't smell as good as you think you smell. And then I was doing this, like no regular deodorant and trying these different natural deodorants, which, which never seemed to work. But here's the thing about BO that I want to make sure people know. We have two kinds of sweat glands. We have eccrine glands, which are all over our body, and the eccrine glands release salty water so that water can be evaporated from our body to cool us down. So that's what happens when it's hot and you start to sweat. That helps to cool your body and regulate your body temperature. Then we have apocrine glands, which are located primarily in our hairy bits, under our arms, in our groin. And those glands, when we are stressed, when the levels of cortisol and epinephrine, norepinephrine, and all these hormones are coursing through, they cause secretion of a milky white substance from the apocrine glands. And that substance, unlike the clear water that's evaporated to cool us, that substance mixes with the bacteria in those hairy places or, you know, like places like under our breasts and places like that. And it creates a smell that can, you know, depending on on your level of stress, can be funky. So, I taught a class at the Georgetown Systems Medicine Program, which I love doing yesterday. And I then left and went to 75-minute hot yoga class 
and I came home, I toweled off, I did not bathe. And then I went for a run this morning. And then I was sort of running late and my daughter's homesick today. So I was making soup and doing all this stuff. And so I put on a clean shirt and I still have on my, I still have on my running pants and I'm funky light. I'm funky now because now, (laughs) you know, I was teaching. So you're teaching your little, and these young students are sharp. So I'm teaching. So that's a little stressful. I mean, it's fun, but you know, you're teaching graduate students. And so there's a little apocrine activity there. And then the yoga was all good, but then I came back, I went out for my run. That's all good. But then I was doing a couple lives and podcasts and that stuff is a little stressful. Not yours, of course. Yours is relaxing. Um, <laughs> and so there's been a little apocrine activity. And so I'm like, yeah, it's time. It's time for me to bathe. Well, listen, How about I really, you? What, what, I just want to ask you, like, are you like a big bather? I do bathe. I don't use as much soap these days, though. And one of the things that I've been experimenting with, I started literally January of this past year. So it's almost been a year since I stopped using deodorant. I went on a retreat and I forgot my deodorant. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? You know, because it's a huge thing. And, and so I just started putting a paper towel underneath my armpits. And it was actually, I would go the whole day and there would be no smell at all. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then I'll do it the next day and the next day. And that just became a thing. So, so yeah, I stopped using it. So that means you're probably like eating well, I would say that that is a reflection. Yeah. Yeah. I try to eat mindfully. I wouldn't characterize my diet as like any kind of model diet, but (laughs) I, I was vegan for a very long time. I was vegan for about 12 years and I was vegetarian for about 15 years. So while I'm not vegan or vegetarian anymore, plants are still a very big part of my daily diet. And, you know, I've been immersed in all this stuff for a while. And so I'm very familiar with a lot of these principles and keeping your windows open and having plants around and getting a little bit dirty. Like I've been actually intentionally putting myself in those kinds of situations where I'm getting a little bit dirty, but trying to eat clean and moving every day. And you even recommend like walking after a meal to help maintain the stomach acid. So all these things, I was just like nodding my head over and over in this book that you wrote. And, uh, but you were already we doing even, them. <laughs> you, you were doing yeah, them. But, but, but I'm excited that it's, it's, it's becoming so normalized, you yeah. know, because back in the day, it would be some hippie bookstore or in some hippie vegetarian restaurant. And that's the only place you would find these kinds of books. And people would just kind of file it away in the category. Oh, you're just a hippie. But now it's like regular people, normal people are incorporating these little tips. And I guess you call them hacks into their day-to-day life. And like, I haven't spoken openly about the fact that I don't wear deodorant because it's not socially acceptable to say that. I tried to tell a couple of my friends and get them to try it. Cause I wanted to see if it, if having a little tissue or something under their arm would have the same effect. No one would try it. Everyone thought I was just completely Okay. Nuts. We we've got to do the pit smell off. When yeah. I, when we see each other. <laughs> I can't wait. But I also think we, we can't end this discussion without talking about the impact of stress yes. on the microbiome. And as one of the major risk factors for poor outcome, I mean, I think in every study, that has been published looking at major risk factors, stress has come up as a risk factor. And, you know, the data is, you know, data from before 
looking at, you know, when they've done experiments, those famous Carnegie Mellon experiments where they took people and exposed them to typically it was coronaviruses, actually, ironically, not SARS-CoV-2, well before, and people who reported being very stressed were got sicker more often, they had more severe symptoms, et cetera. I talk about a study in the book from researchers at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, looking at men with HIV. And in that study, they found that men with HIV who did not have some sort of mindfulness coping strategy. So it wasn't the stress, it was the ones who didn't have any way of dealing with the stress, their disease progressed four times faster. Mm. You think about who get, you think about latent viruses like shingles, which is latent varicella that causes chickenpox. Who gets shingles? People who are stressed, you know, who gets mono, Mm. that sort of thing. And that really hasn't been part of our public service messaging or public health messaging at all. And in fact, so much of the press coverage of this is sort of you know, especially in the first year or two, was designed to terrify us and make us more stressed, right? Watching that Mm -hmm. death count number going, Mm -hmm. and you think about all of that. And the numbers are just astounding in terms of what an impact this has. And so, I mean, for you who have known about this for so long and written about it and the importance of meditation and mindfulness, I mean, that must feel also very gratifying to see that stuff making its way into the mainstream scientific literature. I don't know that it's necessarily making its way into people's daily practices. I hope it is. What What do you mm-hmm. see from your vantage point? I agree with you. And I love the fact that you included the Herbert Benson example and the relaxation response because you used it earlier. Yeah. Yeah. You used it as a point of reference. And I was like, oh, that's cool. She used it. I wonder if she knew that that was you know, the background. And then later on in the book, you mentioned the whole, yeah. this whole thing. And, 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 um, and he was a big researcher of stress. And he was the one that first started studying meditation. In fact, I would say 70% of the meditation research that gets quoted today is wow. an extension of his research. Oh, I had and, no idea. Um, and he was blacklisted in the medical community, I'm sure. He was you know. blacklisted. He was, yeah, because you know, he was at Harvard. Incredible and, quack. Yeah. Yeah. And he was one of the first ones to make the connection between the mind and the body and the white code effect. I think he was the one that coined yes, that term he did. as well. Yeah. So, of course, so, let's yeah, also that, be quick to say that people all over the world in different civilizations had made that connection before Herbert oh, Benson yeah. no, and no, Harvard. Just the but Western, right, in the Western medical, medical absolutely community. in the Western medical community, he absolutely was. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that was really cool to to, to read that in your book, and it absolutely is. You you call it sleep the secret sauce to looking better and feeling better, and and it's all in the same category of just resting. The importance of rest, the importance of de excitation on a regular basis. So any kind of stillness practice can absolutely help you increase your your overall immune system. And so it's great to see you out here advocating for all of this stuff. And and the fact that you're a person of color, you're a black woman, you're from Jamaica. I mean, I think that's amazing. And I think it opens up more access in communities that are beyond, you know, just wealthy white people who have enough money to go to these organic restaurants and stuff and 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 this information can now spread to all areas, all communities, and people will be able to look at that cover and relate to you and, and say, well, if she says it's it's something because you know, black people, let's let's keep it 100. In most black homes, the idea of getting a dog and letting a dog lick you in the mouth and not <laughs> using a hand cloth when you're bathing, you know, showering with just water. We call those white people showers. We just we, have we the soap in the water. To the max. Yeah. And part of that, yeah. you know, really was when I saw that movie 12 Years a Slave, 
that I realized yeah. profoundly that because in slavery and even after how black people were not allowed to be clean, to bathe, to take care of their personal hygiene. And it's funny you say that because even now, like I love to camp and like, oh, we'll go camping. We're not going to bathe for a week. And my black friends are like, Mm-mm. I like call right. your white friend from Utah for that. <laughs> like we are, we are like, we were a minute ago sleeping on the ground with no deodorant. Right. We are not trying to go back there. Right. We are trying to be up in the four seasons with all the mod cons. So yeah. So I, I kind of have my camping friends and my camping yeah. friends are not black people. To have Although a black woman saying to not bathe as much and all this is no, like, but now there are all these outdoor organizations, camping organizations, you know, that are led by people of color. I mean, I think they're still bathing. <laughs> so we have a we have a ways to go there. But you know, I just want to say we were we were chatting at the beginning about when we first met at Revitalize all those years ago at Miraval, right? In Arizona. Mm-hmm. And there are two people, you and Cyrus Meta. Do you know Cyrus, Robbie and Cyrus mastering diabetes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't meet him there. I met him at Plant Stock or a sort of plant-based conference in California years after mm-hmm. that. But you guys have that glow. Like I'm kind of coming in close to the camera to see like, look at light skin. <laughs> it just, and Cyrus, it's it like, it's like you're lit from within this translucent glow to people. So, I mean, I think it is, as you said, it's all of it, right? It is eating lots of plants. It's sleeping. It's getting quiet. It's moving your body. It's getting outside in nature. It's, you know, not taking ourselves and all of this too seriously. Also, I think, you know, having a sense of humility and humor about this, all of it. And for people to see that, that this isn't something that you go to the store and buy, and it's not something just for wealthy white people or, you know, people in Santa Monica, that it is available Mm -hmm. to all of us. And it makes a difference, not just how we look externally, but how we feel internally and Mm. our susceptibility and resilience. So... Do you have any longer term projects that you're working on? Are you going to start your own television show that we don't know about or anything like that? (laughs) One of the things that I'm most interested in, I mean, I will tell you that being a solo practitioner for the last 17 years as I have is difficult Mm -hmm. because people are not only sick on the days when I'm available. And so I've had sort of temporarily closed my practice to new patients because I feel like you're either in or you're out. If you're somebody's doctor, you need to be available when they need you. You can't be a doctor or like, oh, I have to go film something and I'm not available. So I'm reopening to do more second opinion consultations because I really like that where I can say, I can't be your doctor and be available to you all the time, but you're at a fork in the road with your care and often it is for patients with autoimmune diseases like Crohn's and colitis. And, you know, your doctor's saying one thing and you want to do another thing. And I will review everything and really put a plan together that you can take to your doctor. And, you know, we're going to think deeply about whether you should go down that road of a biologic or something, or whether a more food-based diet and lifestyle approach is right for you, because it's not always appropriate for everyone. I mean, if you have Crohn's and you have a narrowing, a stricture in your intestine, you know, no amount of kale is typically going to open that up. So there are times, there are those points in the road. And I think because I bridge both of those worlds, I conventional doctor prescribe drugs, but also have a different approach. So I like that problem solving. What I miss is the extended relationship. I mean, I I have a wonderful patient. I emailed with her today about something because her kids are actually at my daughter's school. I met her when she was 17 
And she is in her mid-30s and has three children. And I always tease her when I see her. I'm like, does your mom know you're having sex? (laughs) Because she's been married. (laughs) I mean, I was at her wedding, you know, 12 years ago. But I remember her in high school. I remember when she got her license, you know, so that long-term relationship where you're caring for somebody and you're getting to know them and their family, you don't get that in the second opinion. You know, I'm going to come in look at everything, give you a plan, move on. But it is also more doable for me right now with other things going on. So I'm excited about that. And and the thing that I most want to do, Light, and maybe you can help me figure this out offline another time. My medical practice is wonderful, but my patients are mostly well-heeled because of the dynamics of the insurance, not doing procedures, how the reimbursement works. So I take care of people who are mostly well-educated, higher socioeconomic demographics. And I, many of those people are wonderful patients and are like family to me. But my mother is named after Lenin's wife, Krupskaya. And my grandfather on my mom's side was the card-carrying member of the Communist Party. And I have to say, like, it feels to me at times a lot. Like I would like to be able to offer this care to other people who can't necessarily afford to pay for it. So I've had all these ideas over the years of, could you create something where somebody's coming in, you're providing care and in exchange, they're not paying you, but they're using this journey with me in an educational way, right? So we're trading. And maybe that's not fair in a way, because why should the person who can't afford to pay have to make their stuff public? But it is a way. And because we can learn so much from what somebody else is experiencing, an illness is something that unites us. We live very differently, but we suffer very similarly. And I see that all the time. You go to any radiation oncology suite, and you go down and you see 10 men getting radiated for prostate cancer, and one could be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and the other is a bus driver they are suffering similarly. Their lives, they may be living very differently, but the illnesses unite us. It's a really odd thing about them. And so one of the things I'm really obsessed with is, could I create something medical, instructive, educational, informative, like a show in that sense, but that doesn't feel voyeuristic where people are getting care as part of that, you know, and I I haven't figured out how to do that, but Mm -hmm. I would like to do that. I would like to do that. Well, in the meantime, you have your Tuesday Instagram lives where people can come and ask you questions. So that's cool. And yeah, I'm just inspired by you making this information so accessible. So I just, I just want to acknowledge you for, for that and for taking these leaps of faith that you've had to take in order to put yourself out there publicly and put what you know out there and to experiment. You seem like the mad scientist type that's going to do it on herself first to make sure it's legit. And so that's really cool. And, and, uh, and I'm honored to be able to call you a friend and I look forward to seeing you again the next time I'm in DC or the next Likewise. time we're in the same city and cross paths. So are thank you, you so are you much. here much in DC? Never. I mean, I, you know, to Howard, so I, I yeah. I'm very familiar with the city, but I haven't been back recently. And, you know, there's that whole two or three year gap where the pandemic, so that uh, there yeah. was a, couple of times I've been there in the last maybe five or six years, but not really. I'm overdue for a trip. I really love the city. And so any little reason to make it back there, I'll, I'm definitely down. So well, I think I offered this up when we first met, but no, but know that you have a place to lay your head here. I mean, I'm sure oh, you have many, perfect. but yeah, mm-hmm. we have a, we have a <laughs> wonderful place for you to stay. 
As long as I'm not sick, because I would probably have to take some Advil or something. <laughs> I'd be coming <laughs> down there with people. green smoothies and a stool yeah, transplant. Like, <laughs> You're like, no, I'm good. <laughs> All right, cool. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Dr. Robin Chutkin. Her new book, The Antiviral Gut, is available everywhere books are sold. And for more wisdom, you can follow Dr. Robin on social media at Gut Bliss, where she does an IG Live Q&A every Tuesday. And of course, I'll drop links to everything that she and I discussed in the show notes on my website, which is lightwatkins.com slash show. If this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, we've got an incredible archive of interviews with many other luminaries who share how they found their path and their purpose, such as the internet poet sensation Young Pueblo, director Ava DuVernay, motivational speaker Ed Milet, and many others. You can even search the interviews by subject matter in case you just want to hear episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or who've overcome financial struggles or who've navigated health challenges. You can get a list of all of those episodes at lightwatkins.com slash show. You can also watch these interviews on my YouTube channel if you want to put a face to a story. Just go to YouTube and search Light Watkins Podcast and you'll see the entire playlist. And if you didn't already know, I post the raw, unedited version of each podcast in my Happiness Insiders online community a day early, so on Tuesdays. And if you're the type that likes to hear all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat in the beginning and the end of each episode, then you can listen to all of that by joining my online community, The Happiness Insiders, which is at thehappinessinsiders.com. And not only will you have access to the unedited version of these podcasts, but you'll also have access to my 108-day meditation challenge, my seven-day meditation kickstart, along with other challenges and masterclasses for becoming the best version of you. And then finally, to help me bring you the best guests possible, it would go a long way if you can take 10 seconds to rate this podcast. All you do is you glance at your screen, you click on the name of the show, you scroll down past the seven previous episodes, you'll see a Space with five blank stars. If you were inspired by this conversation, tap the star all the way on the right and you've left a five star rating. And if you feel inspired to go the extra mile, leave a review with the one episode that you recommend a new listener should start with, just as an introduction to this podcast. It could be the episode that had the biggest impact on you personally. Thank you very much for that. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you so much and have a great day. you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.